Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, welcome back to The Interpreter Show. I'm Neil Rapley. I'm joined here in studio by Jasmine, uh, Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot. And we have, uh, joining us by phone, uh, Hales Swift. We just finished uh, earlier. We did our Come Follow Me portion of the show, which means it's time for us to move on to our gospel advocacy uh, segment. Uh, today, for the gospel advocacy uh, gospel advocacy segment here. We will be talking about uh, criticisms of the book of Abraham uh, and anachronisms in particular and things like that. Um, And how serendipitous that that's our topic since we have the notorious Stephen Smoot here with us who is... the adjective I would use, but fine. is ...is either a brilliant scholar of the Book of Abraham or a hack fraud, depending on who you ask on the internet. Um, So. Let's just dive in. So as far as what people have pointed out as potential anachronisms for the Book of Abraham, uh, I mean, they're like things like place names or people names um, but for the most part, I think I think we can all safely say that most of these the criticisms of the Book of Abraham, I think we can are fairly simple to deal with. I mean, we we're not talking about any real hard hitting stuff here. I think it's actually it's maybe worth noting. It's somewhat striking how much fewer anachronisms there are with the Book of Abraham than with like the Book of Mormon, for instance. Well, it is longer. Uh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but even still. Um, but uh, one of the ones that people bring up is the term Chaldeans or Chaldeans, mm-hmm. or it's actually probably – is it technically a het there? I don't know. Um, it's Kasdim. It's oh. with a – Oh, a, right. OK. So it is. So, so Chaldeans, we'll say. But in Greek, it's uh, has, it's Haldoi, right? So that's where we get – we don't know how to pronounce it in English because you get – <laughs> you can do either in sure. because Greek is weird. Yes. So uh, why don't you take it away, Stephen? What would you say to someone who thinks Chaldeans is a problem for the Book of Abraham? Well, um, fortuitously, I suppose, uh, I happen to have written a whole article on this subject <laughs> that I published a few years ago. Paul Hoskison wrote a study back in the 90s that was pretty good, and then uh, a few years ago I, I – published a follow-up study. So the problem with Chaldeans in the Book of Abraham, it's actually not unique to the Book of Abraham. It's also a problem for Genesis because they also appear, Ur-Kastim appears in Genesis, uh, Genesis 12. And Sounds like Moses was a false prophet. Moses then. was obviously a false prophet. He had anachronism. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the, the problem is this. Our earliest written attestation of the Chaldeans, the Kaldu, uh, come from Assyrian sources, neo-Assyrian sources from around the, uh, like the 10th century BC, where we have these lists of uh, different sort of uh, locations and people, and we have these references to the Mat Kaldu, the land of the Chaldeans. Now, uh, the problem is that's our earliest attestation for this. That's again like 10th century BC or somewhere around there. 
Abraham is supposed to have lived like a good thousand years before that, give or take. And so it's an anachronism on the basis of they don't the, – the Chaldeans don't appear in our epigraphic record until almost 10 centuries after Abraham's day. And if you assume Mosaic authorship of Genesis until a good, you know, give or take three or three or four centuries uh, mm-hmm. after Moses' day. So it's an anachronism by virtue of the fact that our earliest attestation of them is much further. Now, I don't think I have to tell you, but maybe for our readers, I have to mention this is a very problematic way to try to establish something as being anachronistic because it is 100 percent an argument from silence. It is 100% an argument from we don't have attestation for this thing, therefore this thing didn't exist at this time. That may be the case. It may be that the Chaldeans did not exist until way afterwards, and therefore uh, it's anachronistic for both Abraham or Genesis. Or it could be a simple matter of the accidents of archaeology and preservation is such that uh, we just don't have attestation before these earliest ones we have. It could just be an accident of preservation. Right. Right. So our sources just didn't preserve them, didn't survive uh, until later. So that's that's kind of the first sort of knee-jerk reaction that I would give or, or consideration I would give would be to say you're arguing from silence. Just because the attestations are much later doesn't actually disprove the existence of the thing earlier. The second problem with this is who are the Kaldu, the Kasdim in Hebrew, the Chaldeans? Now, when people hear the name Chaldean, they typically think Babylonian because by the time of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, so guys like Nebuchadnezzar and these dudes, they were descendants of the Chaldeans. So the Kaldu, the Chaldeans, they are not native Mesopotamians. We think that they're coming from, uh, from the northern Levant. We think that they are transplants into southern Mesopotamia uh, based on like their names, right? So uh, the names that appear, they, they seem like West Semitic names, not uh, East Semitic Akkadian names or whatever. So uh, the, the prevailing thesis now is that these are a group that come into Mesopotamia that uh, – have a powerful uh, sort of coalition. They gain power. They overthrow the Assyrians. They establish a, a dynasty that we call the Neo-Babylonian dynasty and that Nebuchadnezzar is one of these guys. So that by the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Chaldean had become synonymous with the name Babylonian. And that's mm-hmm. how it's used in exilic and post-exilic writings of the Bible. That's how Jeremiah is using it. That's how Ezekiel is using it. That's how Daniel's using it, Right. Um, but that's a much, much later sort of uh, designation that we get after they had established themselves as a dynasty in southern Mesopotamia. Before that happens, though, it's anybody's guess how old these people are, where they come from, what their ethnic or, or sort of uh, racial background is, what their geographical background is. And so some authors like Cyrus Gordon has said he actually thinks that they're coming from like the Central Asian steppes like modern Turkey or Armenia. Um, others argue for West Semitic origins. Actually, Neil, some people argue for uh, uh, Arabian origins. Oh. For, so, so some are, some right, authors then. have said that uh, the Chaldeans are actually coming not from the north but from the south, and they and they sailed up through the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, right? Anyways, the point is we don't know. It's anybody's guess, and so that's how I would answer this anachronism. I would say yes, it is true that by our current knowledge of what we know, this is anachronistic. But that's, again, an anachronism from silence, which is problematic right. to hang your hat on because it could be that one day it turns out it's not an anachronism because we find earlier attestation. Um, so we just have to suspend some judgment here and be open to the possibility of further data uh, giving for the light on this. Yeah, and I, I think it's maybe worth noting in light of some of those possible points of origin that you talked about, 
it's not surprising that the Assyrian and Babylonian records aren't necessarily mentioning them if they're from some of those places because their empires don't necessarily expand into those areas or those areas just don't become areas of concern for Babylonian and Assyrian record keepers until much later. Uh, you could maybe still argue, well, why don't we find more indigenous records about them from whatever area they're from? Mm-hmm. But everyone knows – well, everyone who knows anything about the ancient world at least knows that our records are so spotty, right? Yeah. And it's it's really a lot harder to pin that sort of thing down. And it's not just the Chaldeans, by the way. Um, we can rattle off a list of people. Let's talk about the Amorites. Oh, yeah. Who are they? Well, Where do they come from? Where are their records? We literally only know about these people called the uh, Amorim or the Amiru be- from other sources saying, hey, these people exist. We call Amorites. We have no native inscriptions from them. We ha- they're, like, they're archaeologically a ghost practically. We have names of these people. Um, how about the Libyans in Egyptian uh, records, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ar- uh, Egyptologists will talk about the fact that we have little to no direct inscriptional or archaeological attestation for these people that the Egyptians call the Ribu, the, the Libyans, right, uh-huh. uh, coming uh, from the Western Desert. So this is not at all uncommon. Uh, it's just an unfortunate accident of history and archaeology that sometimes we have very sparse attestation for certain people that get mentioned, maybe a one-off in some lists, uh, some uh, – place name lists or whatever, and that's our only attestation we have at certain periods. It's just a big question mark until or, or earlier than then or uh, besides that. And we, uh, another thing that I think is maybe worth noting here, uh, one of the locations you mentioned, Turkey or Armenia, does coincide with some theories about where Ur is yep. and where the events of the Book of Abraham are taking place. So we can't hang our hats on it per se, but it's it's – in the uh, it's in the arena, if you will. Yep. It's it's one of the contenders. Um, could it, if that turns out to be true, then it, that could work very well for the Book of Abraham. Um, also worth noting, I think, is that as jo- as Stephen knows very well, the Joseph Smith papyri themselves are much later than you know that they're from the Greco-Roman period. Yes. Uh, and so it's entirely possible that there was some sort of editor or redactor sure. who adds. Chaldean in that period by the time when it's this common word for Babylonian or whatever, right? And that could just be – that could just reflect this so editor's – it, it could be a redactor's anachronism. Yeah. That's, by the way, what people think is happening in Genesis. They think it's a redactor's anachronism right. because uh, one of the arguments goes there are different place names with the Ur element. So Ur, uh, uh, Uru, the one that everybody pins their hat on today, Tel el-Mukiar in southern Iraq – that's the one that is the most predominantly accepted, but it is by no means the only topographical location that has this Ur or Uru element in it. Cyrus Gordon famously posited locations up in uh, northern Syria, southern Turkey. Others have – again, uh, the minority position is to put it up north. The predominant position is to put it south in, in uh, Tel el-Mukyar. Um, but yes, to your point, the, the argument goes – there were so many ores that a later redactor had to try to figure out which ore are we talking about. And he took a stab in the dark and he said, chose, oh, it's southern ore. Yeah. Um, so it could be. That's the situation. Um, I was – oh, shoot. I was uh, going to mention one more thing about that, but now I can't mention it. Anyways, yeah, you, you, you get the idea here. It, it, it's much more complicated than people let on when they say Ur of the Chaldeans is an anachronism in the Book of Abraham. Uh, yes, that's true, technically speaking, but it's not the kind of anachronism that is a uh, – it's fatal to the Book of Abraham. Right. It just shows a uh, a lack of attestation in the archaeological record. We have a big question mark before 10th century BC, 
and it raises the potential for a redactor's anachronism. Yeah. Um, that probably happened with Genesis or may have happened in Genesis. It may have happened with Abraham. Uh, so with that said, then let's go ahead and move on to the next one, Egyptus. Yes. <laughs> You've also done work on this one too. Yeah, this so one, I have. <laughs> I suspect – I'm pretty sure you've done work on all of these. Um, Indeed, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, I mean Egyptus is just kind of a funny one because it, it sounds so fake to be true. Like, right. oh, Egyptus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well – Yeah. So, so with Egyptus, um, first of all, it's worth pointing out that in the Kirtland era manuscripts of our Book of Abraham – the name of the uh, wife of Ham is not Egyptus. The name is Zeptah. That's how I'm pronouncing it. Uh, Z-E-P-T-A-H is how it's spelled in the Kirtland era manuscripts, Zeptah. Um, that is unquestionably a dead ringer, absolutely attested, 100% Egyptian name, Zeptah. Cool. <laughs> Son of Ptah, the god, Ptah. Uh, that's attested in Abraham's day. There's no controversy about that. Um, I mean, you put my you put it, in my head, and I'll tell of? you. Zeptah is an Egyptian name. Yes, son of the god. No, no. Is, is okay. Is, is the Ze prefix mean son of? Yes, son, uh, sa, okay. or si later okay. in demotic. But yes. Uh, so like Zenithi is like son of Nephi or yeah, something like uh, that. That argument's been made okay. for the Book of Mormon names. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, okay. there was a paper in BYU studies just a couple years ago arguing that that Ze. Element in Book of Mormon names could be son of from Egypt. Um, Zayezrum. I know. I know some Egyptologists that still. Be, I mean, I don't know how deep do I want to go into this, right? The yeah. uh, the uh, the uh, philology or etymology of this in Middle Egyptian, yada yada. Uh, suffice it to say, I've written on this. Um, uh, others have written on this. So that's the first thing to say. The name is Zeptah. It gets changed to Egyptus when it gets published in 1842 in Nauvoo. That's when it becomes Egyptus. Why is it changed? We don't know. Uh, different arguments have been given. But uh, whatever the case might be, this is one of these anachronisms that uh, is so easily explained by the fact that it's a modern name being given to the figure. Joseph Smith is trying to render the name or publish the name in a way that like works in English. Egyptus, uh, clearly related to our word for Egypt, right? That comes via Greek, Egyptos. That's where uh, we get the name from. Now, let's take a step further than that. What is Egyptos in Greek trying to render? It's trying to render the, one of the ancient names for the city of Memphis up there uh, by modern Cairo. The name for Memphis is Huatkaptah. You notice that? Ptah? Huatkaptah, the enclosure of the ka of the god Ptah. So the, 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 the enclosure or the estate of the ka, the spirit of Ptah. You notice that Ptah element? Zeptah, Huatkaptah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so like, so <laughs> I, I want to have somebody explain how Joseph Smith gets that one right, where he knows, yeah. without knowing, he knows that Egyptos is uh, somehow has has a, a clear etymological relationship with the name element Ptah, which he originally rendered it as Zeptah. So um, that one uh, again, you can either talk about a Greco-Roman redactionist, maybe let's say, or a copyist has the name Egypt uh, uh, Egyptos, maybe. Um, or it's Joseph Smith trying to work with the name. Uh, this was the suggestion that uh, not Milton Hunter, but another dude back in the 1950s writing on this, uh, whose name escapes me. He suggested uh, that Joseph Smith rendered it this name because it was the more familiar form of the name. So, by the way, we've known about this since the 50s. We've wow. known the name Zeptah. We've had the manuscripts, and authors have been writing about it since then. I think maybe it was Milton Hunter, but I can't remember. Anyways, 
Um, so, yes, we've known about this. Maybe he's trying to update the name. Maybe a redactionist is. It doesn't matter because the damn thing's a translation. And so the name is going to come out in translation, and that might include accidentally anachronizing it via translation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like the Zepta and Egyptus are functionally equivalent, but one is going to be, like you mentioned, more familiar to modern audiences, but it also almost serves like a literary purpose of like giving this character a function uh, since like her purpose is, oh, she's the wife of Ham, and they eventually end up being the patriarchal figures over this yeah. area of the world that we now called Egypt, right. so she is called Egyptus. <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of the idea, right? It's, uh, you know, she's given, I don't know, not an honorific, but she, she she's given this name to designate her status as the progenitoress of the Egyptians, and that's also a Genesis thing. So Mitzrayim in Genesis is a son of Ham, right? Uh, and Mitzrayim is the Semitic name for Egypt. So it all comes together there. So that anachronism is not – not only is it not really a big problem of an anachronism, but when you actually look at it carefully, <laughs> it's like, OK, explain to me, wise guy, how Joseph Smith gets an Egyptian name in his book yeah, that he's supposedly just making funny. up in 1835. That's, uh, that's really mm-hmm. wild. And I'll refer people to my forthcoming book coming out here really soon on it through BYU Studies that we'll get into it in more detail. And then the last one being Pharaoh and – is the idea behind this one that the title of Pharaoh uh, post-dates Abraham's time? So, yeah, the conventional uh, thinking in Egyptology right now is that uh, Pharaoh does not become a title for the king until the uh, 18th dynasty, until Hatshepsut. Um, so this is uh, early New Kingdom, right? So that's the, that's the based on our current evidence, that's kind of the predominant theory. Um, actually, however, Ogden Goelet, uh, a good Egyptologist, has shown attestation of Per'a'a, the, the title. Per'a'a, Pharaoh, just means great house, right? Uh, the, the epithet is attested from the Old Kingdom. So, so the epithet predates Abraham, right, to, to broadly refer to the, the whole estate of the Pharaoh, like his whole household, right, including all the servants and the administrative staff and so forth. The problem with the Book of Abraham, and by the way, also with Genesis, with the way the Bible uses it, is Pharaoh being used as a sort of personal name, right? So this is how Genesis uses it. This is how Abraham uses it. That is where we run into the problem because that's where it seems to reflect the later understanding of Pharaoh as being a title slash name for the monarch specifically as opposed to the the estate of the monarch, right? The, we'll call it like the administration, the royal regime or whatever. So so the, the word itself is not anachronistic. It's, it's a test in the old kingdom. The usage of the name is anachronistic. That's where we run into a problem. But the Book of Abraham is actually kind of ambivalent on whether Pharaoh is the name of the guy or the title of the guy because Abraham one there's Pharaoh singular, but then Pharaohs plural uh, appear in Abraham one, kind of like the Caesars or the Nephi's, right? Like uh, so, uh, it's kind of both. Again, my gut reaction tells me this is a redactional thing happening here, right? Uh, just like with the Bible, you have an unnamed king. He's an Egyptian king, a descendant of this guy Ham. And probably later copyists or redactors are saying, we got to give this guy a name. Hey, we call him Pharaoh, you know, here, so we'll call him Pharaoh here too. Why not? There you go. So, again, sort of an anachronism. Yes, it's an anachronism specifically in the way it's being used. 
Um, but that can be accounted for in terms of uh, a copyist or, again, the translator. Let's say it's Joseph Smith. Uh, being familiar with the biblical usage, perhaps Joseph Smith is the one that this introduces it. This is a king, it. and it's an Egyptian king. We'll call we'll him Pharaoh. We'll call him Pharaoh for, this, for the purposes mm-hmm. of the translation of the story. And, okay, fine. And, and yeah, I mean, I mean, it's worth noting, by the, in the 19th century, the word for a, an Egyptian king yes. was Pharaoh, right? Like, But I wonder, so... It strikes me that uh, the pharaoh anachronism and also some of the other ones uh, also can be looked at through the lens of the dating of the papyri itself as opposed to just talking about Abraham's time. Because Abraham we're talking about being, you know, thousands of years ago, but the papyri itself dates to like the second, third century-ish, BC-ish. And so by that time, all of these terms are well in use. And so, I mean... If we're talking about a story or traditions of Abraham being passed down until the second or third century AD, all of a sudden, well, those terms aren't really a problem anymore, right? I, I believe so. So you have a big problem if you assume that the papyri Joseph Smith receives are an Abrahamic autograph that never get touched and they are pristine and unchanged for something like 4,000 years between an Abraham writes them and Joseph Smith gets them. Which, to be fair, that was an assumption that many of the early saints seem to have had, right? So let's be honest about that. That was an assumption. Maybe Joseph Smith also thought that the evidence is debatable. But um, if you assume an Abrahamic autograph or an Abrahamic holograph that never changes, yes, then you're toast. Because these anachronisms are very hard, if not impossible, to explain. But if you, as I do, posit the very real potential of later redactional and transmission activity – to where the manuscript that Joseph Smith has, the manuscript copy he receives, is from the 3rd century BC, the Greco-Roman period, then these anachronisms pretty much just melt away. And you can attribute all of them to the editor slash the transmitter and or the translator, Joseph Smith. Um, so at first glance, it's a problem. If you question, re-question some of your assumptions, then it's much, much less of a problem. Awesome. Now, there's also some issues... Uh, I mean, I guess you could kind of count these as anachronisms, but not really. The idea that um, in the text of the book of Abraham in chapter one, you've got a couple places where the narrator, it would seem, says something like, okay, and the priests laid me on this couch and they were trying to slay me. Mm -hmm. And uh, that you might have a knowledge of this altar. I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record, which is kind of allusion to facsimile number one. And then later on in verse 14, you've also got another allusion to one of the facsimiles that um, I've given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning, which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans rathlinos, which signifies hieroglyphs. So you've got these internal references to these pictures, um, yet... The papyri itself, um, uh, the the images supposedly come from later post right. Abraham, right? Right. Yep. So, so what do we do with that? What do we do with are, that? Are we toast? You know, do, we, do we do we call it a day? <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what. If you could, if you could make some toast that had facsimile <laughs> one on it, that'd be something. I'll, I'll get a laser. I'll get a laser printer. Yeah, um, that would be an awesome so, toaster. So uh, Abraham chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, which you're reading there, uh, Jasmine, are um, almost certainly uh, 19th century interlinear insertions. Um, We've looked at the manuscripts. Uh, I've looked at them. Joseph Smith Papers people have looked at them. Royal Scouts has looked at them. Uh, Source critics have looked at them for a while now. It's pretty widely agreed, except for among anti-Mormons who are desperate to keep them there, that these reflect 
editorial insertions probably reflect editorial insertions or scribal uh, glosses by Joseph Smith and or his scribes working in the manuscripts in the 19th century. Um, so instead it, of Abraham saying, oh, yeah, I've included these pictures for you, it's Joseph Smith saying – this thing being described here is also reflected in the facsimiles you can find yep. right here. That that probably is arguably the case. So yes. so right, they get typeset so that this there's this facsimile that's being interpreted as representing Abraham's and they want you to look at it and they want you to look at so it. So they refer to it. So they refer to and it. And as Joseph Smith does, he does not feel a compunction to or have any problem with sort of inserting himself in the voice of his scriptural figures, he's editing and translating here. He does this with the Book of Mormon. He does this with the Doctrine and Covenants, right? He, Joseph Smith is okay with inserting himself into this text as the translator and just sort of blending it together with, his, with the ancient authors that he's translating, right? And, and for what it's worth, that's also quite well attested as a practice by ancient oh, 100%. writers and authors. The biblical and, authors do this. editors, yeah. 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 yeah, it's standard fare. So, um, so those references, um, again, the only people that fight against this are anti-Mormons because this is a key piece of evidence in their argument against the Book of Abraham. Oh, well, look, the, the text references the facsimiles, right? Yeah, well, uh, if you're just reading the printed scriptures that we've had since 1842, then yes, they do. But look at our manuscript evidence, and uh, I would argue um, uh, absolutely with Abraham 112, it's an interlinear insertion. Uh, it's a scribal gloss, and very probably with Abraham 114, it is as well. Um, and so, again, that we just have to have a more sort of critical idea of Joseph Smith as the translator versus Joseph Smith as the editor – and his scribes also helping him with this, and we have to be okay with a level with amount of Joseph Smith's sort of fingerprints on the text. Go ahead and take those two verses out, by the way. And this is a criteria that, that text critics use all the time to sort of try to argue for original versions of a text. Take those two verses out, and the the narrative flows very naturally. Like there's no like weird disjointed gaps or whatever. Like you can just keep reading without those verses and it's not a problem. And so I think there's something to say about that. Uh, and I think that probably answers that very well. Yeah. Well, another criticism people have brought up about the Book of Abraham isn't necessarily an anachronism as much as a conflict between science and religion, if you will. So in facsimile number two, you've got this hypocephalus that depicts all sorts of images and iconography dealing with like the solar bark and the cosmos and the sun and the stars and all this crazy stuff. And Joseph Smith translates it with very religious symbolism, uh, even though the Egyptians also had different uh, meanings they ascribed to it. And so figure number five says that the sun would borrow its light from the revolutions of Kolob. And the conflict here being that, well, our sun doesn't get its light from another star really far away. Our sun generates its light from, you know, the fusion process that's happening. And it's a giant burning ball of gas. And so obviously what Joseph Smith translated in facsimile 2 is scientifically incorrect. Therefore, let's give up and ba go home. Basically, why doesn't the cosmology of the Book of Abraham and facsimile 2 in particular with its description of figure 5 and no doubt other parts, why doesn't it reflect modern science, a modern scientific understanding of the cosmology? Of the cosmos. Because it's not a modern cosmology. It's an ancient one. There you go. I mean, no, yeah. I, I, mean I don't know what to say. It's, uh, uh, I mean, get mad at the Bible, I, I guess, for having unscientific cosmology. Uh, no, look, I, I don't mean to sound flippant here because uh, it is a good question. 
Uh, full disclosure, I am not an astrophysicist, uh, so I cannot tell you the particulars or a cosmologist, so I can't tell you the particulars of how this works. What I can tell you is uh, the cosmology of the Book of Abraham, I believe very strongly, is an ancient cosmology. I believe that this cosmology is reflected in Joseph Smith's explanations of the facsimiles, which are also ancient pictures and not modern pictures. And so there's big questions about how does this cosmology work within the Book of Abraham? Uh, can we find attestation for how it works in the ancient world? We can to a degree, yes, and I've written on this. Uh, not 100% though, right? I'm not going to say that it's a 100% surefire. We can pinpoint every little thing. But yes, in broad strokes, the cosmology finds very good home in the ancient world. And so I'm sorry, but so what? It's not a modern cosmology. It's an ancient one. And Latter-day Saints and others, other Christians for that matter, other Jews, just have to kind of be cool with the idea that scriptures don't always reflect modern scientific understandings of the cosmos. And that's okay. And so all this business about Kolob and the sun receiving its light, um, whatever Abraham's understanding of the cosmos was, which may very well be reflected about this, uh, I think we just need to be open to this idea that uh, scientific cosmology is not the to use a Joseph Smithism, a sum of the summum bonum, right, of uh, how we approach the scriptures. Uh, right, and I think it's even worth noting in light of that. So, facsimile to figure five for those listening who, unless you flipped open your copy of the Book of Abraham, you may not know what that is specifically. Right, it's the cow figure. Yep. Uh, and there actually is an ancient connection there. <laughs> To the sun, if I'm not mistaken, and I better not be mistaken because I'm getting that straight from your <laughs> from my article. On your, uh, your, your, I'm actually looking in your Pearl of Great Price uh, study edition. So, yep. Um, so straight from the horse's booklet. S- straight that's from right. the cow's mouth. That's straight yeah. from the cow's mouth. <laughs> um, yep. So, better. so this upside down cow figure very well attested in other hypocephali um, and other Egyptian contexts. Um, it's probably the goddess Hathor, um, or so Hathor, ha, that's one, it could be Ihiweret, that's another cow goddess that basically is just also Hathor, just a different version of Hathor, uh, the great cow she's called sometimes, right, whatever. Um, so yeah, this cow figure like absolutely has solar connections indisputably. Um, you don't see it in here because in this figure, uh, the cow figure is wearing a, a crown between her horns. But in other hypocephali, in another context, she has a giant sun disk between her horns. And in texts, in temple texts from the Ptolemaic period, when this hypocephalus dates to, uh, the cow figure of Hathor is explicitly called the sun. She is identified as the sun. She's the sun who gives birth to the lights, meaning uh, like the moon and uh, and the stars, right? Uh, the stars are sometimes depicted as being like embedded in her belly because she's like she's stretched over the cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, passing through her belly is like the sun and the moon and the stars or whatever. So um, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like Anish Goandosh and Kai Vanrash. Don't ask me what that means. I don't have a good etymology for those. But I can say yes, it's the sun, and it also <laughs> has. Uh, it also is. He talks uh, governs fifteen other fixed planets or stars. And also the moon and the earth and the sun. Yep, that all works pretty well with how we know Hathor figures in this cosmology, right? Um, uh-huh. Others have written on this as well. It's it's very well attested. So even though some parts of this explanation raise an eyebrow, I can't really explain it right now. Um, I I have to say, how does Joseph Smith get that this cow thing is the sun, right? Like, like that's yeah. a weird connection to make. <laughs> Who would have thought Who that? Who thinks in a million years? Oh, yeah, this cow is definitely the sun. I mean, look. 
I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to make it up on the fly. This cow is Baal, the golden calf that was worshipped by Aaron or whatever, right? Like, And this represents the idolatry of the Egyptians. Whatever. I can just make up whatever. I can riff on whatever cow thing from the Bible, which allegedly mm-hmm. Joseph Smith is supposed to be doing here, right? And just kind of go off in fantasy land. But like, no, this explanation is grounded. The cosmology here has some kind of a grounding from ancient Egypt. It's, it's really remarkable. Not all of it. Uh, admittedly so, but really good, interesting parts of it are. So, yeah, I think that's worth also pointing out. And from, like, Joseph Smith's perspective, in in addition to just uh, seeing this as ancient cosmology, I mean, we can also view this in a more religious light. I mean, Joseph Smith is taking these Egyptian symbols and overlaying them yeah. with restoration, religious themes. And so, I mean, you've got, like, D&C... 88 talking about the light of Christ and how the light of Christ lights everything in the universe. It lights the sun. It lights the stars. It lights everything. And so if you're taking that concept, saying that the sun borrows its light from the revolutions of Kolob, and we know Kolob is, you know, the uh, the dwelling place, hypothetically, of God, I mean, you're kind of just saying that, yeah, the sun gets its light from the light of Christ, religiously. We're not saying sure. scientifically. Yeah. <laughs> We're saying that God lights everything. He is the source of light, of goodness, of every energy in our universe. And so that's what the sun is doing, and that's what yeah, why we, we can, say that in the facsimile. <laughs> I think that's yeah. I think that's right to sort of, of law. I think it's good to sort right. of approach from that perspective because in the cosmology of Abraham chapter three. So Abraham's looking up at the stars, and uh, he has like these tiered hierarchies of heavenly bodies, and it goes like um, stars, moon, sun, and then Kolob. And Kolob is the greatest of all the Hakokabim, all the stars. It is nigh into the throne of God, and like everything else, like is subsumed under Kolob's authority as a governing one. Kolob, Kolob governs all these other planets and stars and stuff like that, right? So in the cosmology of Abraham 3, when Abraham sees this cosmos that God shows him in a vision, Kolob, identified somehow with God or near God or the residence of God, controls, is the governing controller of all the other celestial bodies. And I could easily see Joseph Smith taking this understanding and using it in his explanation of the facsimile to import as to impart, as you say, Jasmine, this idea of... Uh, we receive the, the light of God. The light of Christ emanates throughout all of time and space. And Kolob is God. Ergo, the sun and all the other planets or whatever get their their light and the revolutions from Kolob. So it's a metaphysical, uh, religious, allegorical, if you will, cosmology. It's not a scientific cosmology. It's not meant to be a scientific cosmology, I think. And so if we just take a step back and don't worry about the science behind it for now, we can maybe better contextualize what's actually happening here. Wonderful. It's always, it, it's always interesting how people who don't believe a text assume that they're the most authoritative and possible interpreter of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and that's, you know, that, that does raise something that I've said before. I know I've said it to Stephen before. It's probably been a few years, though. But, like, just as a general rule for me, uh, I do not let unbelievers of whatever stripe, whether they're some evangelical anti-Mormon or uh, some atheist or a former member of the church, unbelievers do not get to tell believers what the text means, right? Right. Full stop. We are the ones who get to decide, who, who, who get to interpret authoritatively as believers. And by that, I don't mean that 
we here, me and Stephen and Jasmine and Hales, we're I, the authoritative interpreters of, of Mormon scripture or Latter-day I mean that. scripture. I mean that for myself. Stephen Speak does. Your, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, but, but the believing community is, are, are the ones who get to define set the terms. and set the terms, yeah. right? You don't so, – so if you're ever coming across any kind of criticism from some outsider and they're insisting that, that the text must mean X, just keep that in mind. They do not get to decide – what the text means as outsiders. They're not even part of the conversation, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what the text actually means. If I may um, piggyback off of some trendy discourse you hear these days, uh, these are people in positions of power and privilege who are imposing a hegemonic, (laughs) colonized understanding of these texts. They are authoritatively, dogmatically uh, insisting from a place of power what these texts must mean, and they are thus marginalizing people uh, who want to negotiate with these texts in meaningful, subjective ways. And so uh, you need to tell people to check their privilege when they do this. You need to uh, tell them that they are engaging in uh, exegetical violence when they do this and that they are imposing a hegemonic worldview on others and they are effectively colonizing others' religious beliefs by imposing their own uh, dogmatic, secular, or uh, or quasi-religious views on it. With that, let's uh, (laughs) – okay. Okay. Um, So the next thing we have on our list here, the next thing we have on our list, and I apologize if anybody was hoping to get more diversity of opinion, but Stephen really is our star (laughs) on the Book of Abraham. We can't hold a candle, really. Uh, (laughs) But the next thing we have on our list, and I apologize to Stephen if he feels like all the pressure's on or something, but (laughs) – in 1829, there was a book published by Thomas Dick that some people have said was a source for the Book of Abraham. Uh, Klaus Hansen, a, histor- a historian from uh, – I don't remember when he was big. Uh, like Back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. a long time ago. He made th- – this was a, an argument he made in his book Mormonism in the American Experience. Um, Von Brody also made it. Von Brody uh, – so what do you what are your thoughts on that Stephen is is Thomas Dick's The Philosophy of a Future State that's the name of the book mm-hmm. uh is that credibly or even plausibly a source for information in the book of Abraham So um if you want to talk about plausibly, sure, because Oliver Cowdery is quoting from it in The Messenger and Advocate in 1835 around the same time that the Book of Abraham translation kicks off and so, yeah, you know, you can say Latter-day Saints like Oliver Cowdery are kicking around ideas from uh, from Thomas Dick. Um, but uh, so plausible on the very bare bones of sure. Like he's a source that is known in Latter-day Saints circles. He's being quoted in the church newspaper because people are interested, like Oliver Cowdery, uh, in his ideas. Okay. Um, but beyond that, once you actually do a pretty close scrutiny of, of the two sources, uh, the, the, the parallels break down. And mm-hmm. what you discover is that the differences between the two, I think, far outweigh uh, the similarities between the two. Um, just sort of offhand, uh, so they both talk about intelligences. <gasps> oh, my gosh, Thomas Dick has <laughs> intelligences, and so does Book of Abraham. Yes, that's true, but uh, Thomas Dick's intelligences were created ex nihilo by God. 
Um, and Joseph Smith's intelligences in the Book of Abraham are explicitly Co-eternal. eternal with God. Like they're not created ex nihilo. The Book of Abraham explicitly rejects ex nihilo, things like that, right? So if you kind of squint hard enough, you can see some parallels. Honestly, like the same with the Book of Mormon in view of the Hebrews. Oh, my gosh, they both quote Isaiah. They both have ancient <laughs> Israelites coming to America, you know, things like that. So um, so Fawn Brody uh, and Klaus Hansen, as you mentioned, they, they sort of made, made much hay out of this. Uh, but Eric pa- Robert Paul, back in 1992, he wrote on this in his book, Science, Religion, and Mormon Cosmology. And Eric Robert Paul basically throws a lot of cold water on this and says, yeah, the parallels aren't super great. Um, if you want to, you can talk about sort of generally this sense of whatever. But, like, you can't really point to explicit, like, oh, this is a dead ringer. He's getting this from Thomas Dick, right? Uh, even before uh, Paul did his study, though, you had um, uh, Edward – oh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, oh. I'm spacing on his name, but he did a he did a thesis at BYU in the 70s on this, oh, wow. and and he 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 looked specifically at at Fawn Brody and sort of took was, her to the was woodshed. Was it Ed Ashman? No, it wasn't Ed Ashman. Um, goodness, it's going to drive me nuts. But uh, there was a, a a master student at BYU that did his thesis on this. Who same thing? He comes to the conclusion and says, "Yeah, you can see some broad conceptual parallels, but there's there's no sort of dead giveaway that he's doing this." So um, I just think that. Uh, was it Ed Jones, I think, maybe? Anyways, that's going to drive me nuts. But um, uh, he he thinks the parallels are overblown. Uh, Eric Robert Paul thinks the parallels are overblown. I think the parallels are overblown, are overblown. Sure, you can sort of plausibly see some similarities. You can say, look, Oliver Cowdery was quoting it. Okay, that's fine. Um, but beyond that, you don't have a really good case in my judgment. Um, actually, the cosmology of Abraham works very, very well from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. Uh, I am so confident about that, in fact, that I am going into print uh, very soon on this, and I have gone into print, and others have as well. So to pick out these random people from the 19th century and to try to draw a comparison uh, with the Book of Abraham, sure, you can do that, and there might be something there to talk about, but you have a mountain of counter-evidence you have to get through uh, that I can show and others can show situating the Book of Abraham's cosmology in the ancient Near East. You know, this really kind of strikes me, like, given so, – so there's – I'm not surprised people were drawn to this because there does seem to be this striking like, oh, intelligences and intelligences. And that seems unusual, right? Like, oh, those the use of those two words. But then like the differences in the concepts makes it seem maybe really kind of plausible to me at least that like Joseph Smith as a good translator is kind of searching for a word. There's this concept in the book of Abraham that he doesn't quite know how to articulate and he maybe pulls this word this concept of intelligences from thomas dick gets this word and uses it in the translation but like that's like where the comparison ends right i mean both of them use it so differently yeah. i mean joseph smith uses it to talk about the these material spirit sons and daughters of god and uh, uh-huh. dick uses it kind of he kind of rejects the idea that God stands in no need of intelligences below him sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, so yeah, it's like Joseph Smith is maybe as a translator, just not sure how well, like what to you, what else do I call these things? What do you call that, these things? Right. What's the Egyptian word or, or whatever the underlying text, what word is there and, and how do I translate it? And he's like, Oh, well we've been reading this. this. Is a th- yeah. This is a thing that people are discussing. This might work. Um, Avram Shannon at the most recent SBL meeting had a really good, interesting paper arguing that the intelligence of the book of Abraham is directly related and comparable to the concept of naos in Greek thinking mind 
is how it's typically rendered and like how uh. this works. Uh, and the fact that these papyri are from the Greco-Roman period, Avram Shannon thinks is significant. So uh, look, this is, I guess, Stephen Smoot rule 101. For every modern parallel people want to point to with the book of Abraham, I can show you an ancient parallel. And most of the time, the ancient parallels are better, so, uh, I think, and they're stronger. So that was that was presented by Avram Shannon at SBL. And SBL so, yeah. so now my question is, is SBL among the apologists? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I think it's just interesting. I mean, this goes into the larger conversation of trying to find a setting for the Book of Abraham or the Book of Mormon. It comes out in the 19th century, and so some people, a lot of critics or skeptics, would argue that we need to situate it within that 19th century context and find parallels there because that is its publication venue, essentially. But then you've got the approach of, well, the text itself presents it as ancient, so should we then look towards the ancient world to find its setting? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I mean, the answer is, you know, why not both? Like, obviously, as a translator, there's going to be influence from the 19th century, but I do think we're remiss if we are overlooking what the text presents itself to be, and if there is Mm -hmm. plausible evidence that there is a a good situ like an environment for that text in the ancient world as it presents itself that to me kind of tips the scale in favor of this is the setting that we need to be considering and taking seriously especially since like there's not really a way to accommodate that like if if you're going full-on secular explanation of the text any Mm -hmm. connection to the ancient world has to be denied right yes Uh, unless it can be clearly derived from the bible or plausibly derived from the bible itself um, or, you know, people will search far and wide, you know, 19th century sources, uh, you know, for various things. That, oh, these ancient ideas survived through these really obscure channels and made it to 1830 like or whatever. Masonry. But, yeah. <laughs> but, like, by yeah. and large, ancient connections, especially ones that are precise and accurate to the actual time period that we know the papyri come from or that we know that Abraham mm-hmm. comes from, really don't have a plausible explanation, whereas mm-hmm. we do believe it was translated or revealed well that's, in a modern setting in a modern yeah. setting so so yep. we can we can expect and anticipate some nineteenth century influence because Fingerprints on yeah, it. yeah because any, among other things it came in English yeah, yeah. I mean any right. any translation is going to reflect the the target audience's cultural expectations to some degree mm-hmm. or else it's going to fail to Successfully, yeah, yeah. Su- successfully communicate. Well, we only have a few more minutes left, but the last thing we want to bring up, uh, I'm going to read three names to you, Stephen. And, okay. Uh, you'll probably recognize these names. James Bred- Breasted. Yep. Uh, Flinders Petrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dr. A.H. Sayus. Sayus, yep. Sayus. Who are these Egyptologists, and what did they say about the Book of Abraham, and why should we or should we not care? So, so two of them are Egyptologists, and one is an Assyriologist. So, uh, Breasted and Petrie are Egyptologists, and Sais was an Assyriologist, who I think also had, did have some uh, work in e- Egyptology, but that wasn't his primary field. So, James Henry Breasted, uh, he goes off and gets a PhD from Berlin uh, in Egyptology. He's the first American to get a, a doctorate in Egyptology from Berlin. He studied with 
Kurt Zeta and Adolf Ehrmann and the great Berlin philologists of Egyptian. Um, and he comes back and he teaches at Chicago. And uh, he, uh, I believe he's one of the early co-founders of the Oriental Institute at Chicago. Uh, but at the very least, he teaches at Chicago and uh, he's a uh, an, an eminent early American Egyptologist. So that's who James Henry Breasted is. He uh, uh, he produced uh, a lot of works. Uh, I think he dies in the 1930s or 1920s. 1935, so, yeah. 35, okay. So, yeah, late, late, you know, 1920s, he's producing a lot of uh, really interesting work and, and so forth. So that's who Brest that is. Uh, William Flinders Petrie is basically the father of modern uh, Egyptological archaeology. Uh, so he's working he's, – he's an Englishman. So uh, he's working from Great Britain and he is the first one to do like serious scientific excavations, archaeological excavations uh, in Egypt. Uh, he's one of the first to like seriously apply rules of like stratigraphy and typology and sort of scientific methods of excavating in Egypt and not just like basically tomb robbing, which is and what was being done before. If I recall correctly, he was also influential in in Israel as well. Yeah, that's in right. So, like so that. archaeology in the Near East, right? Yeah. But uh, but uh, especially Egypt, he's digging all over the place in Egypt. Uh, and so that's Flinders Petrie. Um, and then Sace, again, the only thing I really know about, uh, uh, I think it's Arthur Sace, is that he's an Assyriologist uh, who's working, well, I want to say with the British Museum, but I could be mistaken about that. Uh, you can maybe Google that or, or check yeah. that. But uh, but the reason why these people's names come up is because uh, a fellow by the name of Franklin Spaulding writes to them in, uh, 19, in the early 20th century. Um, and he says, hey, guys, here's this book of Abraham that this guy Joseph Smith claims he translated, and here's these facsimiles. Uh, what do you think about Joseph Smith's explanations? Uh, how do they hold up? And they just sort of universally pan Joseph Smith's explanations. And, and he solicits these opinions. They write back to Spalding, and they're saying, yeah, we think that this is nonsense. Uh, Joseph Smith's explanations are, are, are dumb and stupid, and uh, he clearly didn't know Egyptian, yada, yada, yada. Because of their eminence – uh, uh, as early Egyptological forefathers, or, or I should say early uh, forerunners, right, of modern Egyptology, pioneers, we could say, because of their eminence and because they were so damning towards Joseph Smith and because Franklin Spaulding quoted them to great effect, great rhetorical effect, they are held up as the darlings of anti-Mormons when used to trash the Book of Abraham. I could almost guarantee that no anti-Mormon alive today, especially the ones on Reddit or Twitter, have any idea who these people are besides the fact that we know they trash the Book of Abraham. <laughs> I, think if I, like, if, I think if I offered them money, they wouldn't be able to name any other publications from Petrie or Breasted or any other work they did. All they know about them is, oh, well, yeah, you know, they, they said the Book of Abraham facsimiles were mistranslated or whatever. So, so that's who these people are. That's why their name gets just gets drawn up uh, when it comes to uh, the facsimiles of the Book of Abraham. And uh, in terms of whether people should be listening to them or should be uh, heeding their judgments, I actually think that, yes, they should. Because at least in the case of Breasted and Petrie, because they were serious uh, Egyptologists, they uh, were serious scholars, their judgments and opinions should be considered as part of the conversation when we approach facsimiles. However, <laughs> I would follow up and I would remind people that uh, they wrote these things about the facsimiles in 1912. <laughs> That's over 100 years ago when they're working and writing about this. You can imagine that 100 years later, we know a lot more about ancient Egypt and the Joseph Smith papyri and the facsimiles. Yeah, that was before we even got the papyri back. That's before they were even rediscovered. So, and uh, ancient Assyriology for, for what that for matters. For that matter, <laughs> yes. So these guys are – I mean they're just basically dinosaurs at this point. <laughs> Actually, among them all, uh, Petrie holds up the best because Petrie did really good archaeology. And so – 
Uh, Breasted, uh, his translations are now uh, kind of, you know, uh, archaic. They're not super great now from our modern understanding of Egyptian philology and language. So you got to take Breasted with a big grain of salt. Uh, I have no idea how well Sace holds up, but I imagine not well because just knowing <laughs> knowing the trend of, of these things um, because the seriology is not my forte. But uh, my frustration is that people quote these experts from 100 years ago and they call it a day. And they act as if there has been no follow-up, there's been no further developments, no further scholarship, no further investigation. Um, it's just basically lazy. I'm sorry. There's no other way to say it. In no other field would people be quoting – let's say this was like astronomy, for example. Nobody would be quoting astrophysicists from before Einstein came around as if they were the final word and the final judgment on modern astrophysics. I mean, Hales, you're a scientific guy. Am I crazy here? Like in your field of, of you know, scientific uh, you know, uh, work? Like if you're quoting scientists so, from 100 years ago authoritatively and dogmatically as if they have the last word on the matter, like that's problematic, right? So there are a few exceptions. It, 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 it's unusual that that would be the case. Um, I do acoustics, so occasionally folks like Rayleigh, which, who's one of the old characters, um, get, uh, get still cited because they did some very foundational things. Right, like science, yeah. science works a little bit differently because if you're good enough at math, you can sometimes get something right that is like right pretty much eternally. <laughs> yes, science is sure. kind of a different uh, ball. But but to my point right here, yeah. you know, th- this is my frustration. The other thing I'll mention, by the way, is uh, when it comes to Spalding's 1912 experts, and then I'll shut up because I know I've been filibustering. Um, yeah. uh, people that like to selectively quote these guys. They they tend to conveniently leave out the places where they say stuff that actually kind of works for Joseph Smith. So the standing figure in fact, only number one. Uh, uh, some of these Egyptologists that Spalding talked about identified it as a priest. Some identified it as Anubis, the god Anubis. Some said it was a priest. And uh, n- notice which one gets quoted by anti-Mormons on the internet and which ones don't. You know what I mean? Like, right. so, so this is to say, uh, to, to wrap it all up here, um, yes, the opinion of these Egyptologists should be considered. They're part of the conversation. They're part of the work and the scholarship on this. It is totally lazy and irresponsible to pretend that these guys 100 years ago – uh, are the final word on this and that we've made no progress since then and that there's nothing else to say about this. Um, and so it's it's just lazy gotcha, uh, you know, polemics uh, to try to point to these people and, and call it a day. Indeed. Well. Well, I've been thoroughly edified and I feel like, honestly, the Book of Abraham just gets better with age, just like the Book of Mormon. The more you study it, the more you unpack these claims and the more you check your own assumptions, the more you realize that there's a lot of room for the book of Abraham to fit within antiquity. And like Neil said, if we believe it's ancient, we should expect 19th century elements. But if we believe, if you believe it's only 19th century and secular, then there should be zero ancient elements. But the fact that we've got one lucky guess, two lucky guesses, a multitude of really just bullseyes is I think a really strong witness. You could almost say that the Book of Abraham has aged better than those 1912 Egyptologists. (laughs) Indeed. uh, Their opinions. Do you maybe want to get a plug in for your forthcoming uh, publication, Stephen? I was just going to say, at the risk of being immodest, um, I have a book coming out. I have co-written it with John Gee, Carrie Muelstein, and John Thompson. It will be the next issue of BYU Studies. Uh, it will be completely dedicated to the Book of Abraham on the state of the art of the scholarship to show some examples of what I'm talking about here with the progress we've made. 
Um, it's going to press very quickly, very soon. So uh, probably this month it should be available, later this month. And uh, for those who don't know, all three of Stephen's co-authors that he just named all have PhDs in Egyptology uh, from more recently than 1912. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and Stephen himself has uh, recently finished his graduate work and is wrapping up a PhD yep. in uh, in Egyptology and Semitics. So, um, so lots of expertise went into this uh, into this volume. I am a hack fraud, but I am a hack fraud that's getting a doctorate, so that's got to count for something. <laughs> Uh, but with that said, uh, we are done. This has been the Interpreter Show. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you all have a good Sunday evening.